You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly um, broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Also happens to be the town of Tom Brady and Gisele Bundchen. So um, the super couple and um, congratulations to the New England Patriots on their fourth Super Bowl. Um, But we have a very super show for you today that um, won't get fumbled, hopefully. And um, or intercepted, but we um, and you and you look at the movies where they talk about dystopian futures, um, and you know something like Blade Runner. It's always something where um, there is a society where machines have taken over. Um, particularly if you think of Blade Runner, um, and you know it, it may not have occurred to you, but last year there were more machines connected to the internet than there were people. And so um, that has become evolved into what is commonly known as the Internet of Things. And the Federal Trade Commission last fall had a, a symposium on what, what does that mean, this, this growing world of the Internet of Things, and should we be concerned? What are the privacy considerations? Well, the report just came out, and we have with us um, Joseph Jerome from our good friend at the, uh, the Future of um, Privacy Forum. Uh, we've had this, the founder, Jules Polonetsky, on a number of times um, to talk to us about that. So, Joel, are you with us? Yes. I I Joseph, I'm sorry. Um, so, um, thank you for joining us. Why don't you, for those who aren't familiar with the, uh, the Future Privacy Forum, why don't you just give us a little blurb on what they are? Well, so the Future Privacy Forum, we like to position ourselves as, as something of a, a centrist think tank, which is, I think, sort of hard to do in Washington, D.C. these days. Um, but we try and sort of, we bring together privacy advocates um, and industry to sort of try and work out what can be business practical and 
um, common sense privacy practices. Um, so we've done a lot of stuff working on codes um, to try and sort of establish baselines around the smart grid, um, lots of location data and applications. Um, and increasingly, much of our time is occupied with trying to deal with new challenges or I guess existing challenges in new dimensions that are posed by um, the Internet of Things and what's often connected with it, uh, the concept of big data. Right. Well, and you know, the two go hand in hand because you, know, you read about how um, the, the amount of data in the world is doubling at an incredible rate. And a lot of it comes from data that's being collected, not from humans, but from our cars, our refrigerators, yep. and all those things. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure everybody's been paying attention to all this exciting stuff that came out of CES. Um, you know, they, they've actually anticipate that the Internet of Things and all of these new smart technologies um, are going to have a market value of upwards of $7 trillion, trillion by the end of the decade. Um, the, the numbers, I think, as you mentioned, are, are, are really just staggering. Um, they're, the, the amount of devices and objects that are going to be connected uh, to the Internet uh, by the end of the decade will be just huge. Um, one of, just specifically, one of the areas where the future of privacy forum is really engaged is wearable devices like, like your Fitbits. Um, last year, there were approximately 22 million um, shipments of wearable you know, products, um, which is, they anticipate that reaching like 135 million by, by 2018. Um, it, it's really sort of staggering. Uh, at the same time, I think one of the challenges is there's no real clear definition of what the Internet of Things is, just like there's ne not necessarily a real cl clear definition of what big data is. Um, right. For the, for the for purposes of the FTC report, um, they actually they tried to cabin the Internet of Things to just be things that are devices and sensors um, that connect or communicate and uh, transmit information other than computers, smartphones, and tablets. And they also tried to cabin it to just consumer products. Um, so, <laughs> you know, they, they were trying to, I mean, the Internet of Things is, has broadly encompasses all sorts of different things. And I think the FTC was, I mean, almost, they're almost overwhelmed by the topic. Well, I think you know, it's funny. Our very first show um, five years ago was with Chris Olson with the you know one of the um, Consumer Protection Bureau with the FTC and one of their main privacy guys. And um, it was right when the FTC was doing their roundtables on um, what they you know how they should approach further privacy regulation because um, so much had changed since they last attempted to regulate the space. And it, you really got the sense that they were just trying to get their arms around all the new actors that had emerged in the last yep. few years, and they, they you know, and Chris conceded that as much. And you know, again, you know, while they're still just getting their arms around that, then you add in this, you know, the number of actors involved in you know the privacy debate and um, people involved in the information um, just keeps to grow exponentially. Yeah, and actually a lot of the, the, the new players, and this is something FPF tries to do um, across a, a range of our products, or our, our projects rather, um, we try and engage with these people who aren't used to thinking about privacy concerns. Um, I think in particular, we do a lot of stuff with connected cars, um, and the, the a number of um, automobile manufacturers, OEMs, they put out these automotive privacy principles that we, we helped with last fall. Um, but 
talking to them initially, they just weren't really aware of the privacy implications. They're used to building cars. They sell right. cars to dealers. The dealers then sell cars to consumers. They don't really have a relationship with consumers. They just build this product. Um, and now they're being flooded with, well, we have to include apps or we're going to include, you know, um, like services like OnStar, and they're going right. to have this direct relationship with consumers. It's going to involve a lot of different data, um, and it, it's new to them, and it's it's new to regulators. And it, in many respects, and what's exciting for my job is it, it's new to me. And it is interesting, you know, that because we um, about two years ago, I think there was a story of, of I think it was for General Motors, you know, facing hard times, realized they had all this data, and they thought, hey, why don't we sell it? <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and um, but then of course someone said, "Hey, there is this thing called privacy." Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I, I, you know, and I don't attribute this to any sort of malicious act on their part. I just think that people aren't aware of these things. Um, you see this a lot of times with education, um, education policy. You have all sorts of people, teachers, people in their garages that want to create new apps um, that could facilitate um, personalized learning, um, and they just they. A, aren't aware of the privacy implications. They aren't aware of the ability to monetize that data. Um, and they need more guidance. And FPF tries to provide that guidance. We're, we're constantly trying to convene um, different industry groups and different advocates to sort of work out baselines. Um, as I mentioned, we've done stuff with wearables. We're doing stuff with connected cars. Um, increasingly, we do a lot of stuff with, with big data and, and facial recognition. Um, and, and at the same time, I, you know, I think there's a I think there's a large role for organizations like the Federal Trade Commission to play more to provide more public education, um, right. just because if if you're a, I think that's what actually makes Internet things so exciting. A lot of it is it's it's startups, people with a good idea, and you know sensors and and the type of devices that that generate connectivity don't cost a whole lot. So you have to you know people are finding really interesting new ways to stick them into products from you know clothing to your toasters to your scales um and then you know trying to figure out what you do with that next is is it's an open question for a lot of folks it is and you know before we jump into you know, the, the privacy concerns what are some just some great examples of the benefits of the internet of things well why I mean, why by and large is this considered a good thing well, or some have said the new industrial revolution <laughs> Well, I guess people are also saying data is the new oil. Um, I've it, heard it, that, yeah. It, it, like, there's, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of things like the quantified self. And I, I've, I admit I'm sort of jumping into this bandwagon too. Um, during the holidays, as many people do, um, I gained quite a bit of weight. Um, and so I rewarded myself by buying a, a smart scale, um, which gives me all sorts of information. And it, then it presents itself, you know, on my phone or on my computer in a really visually intuitive way. Um, and, you know, I, I think that these sorts of things are where people see a lot of the benefits of the Internet of Things. Um, it's it's making, making data more accessible to users. I mean, previously I had a, an, I had an, a non-connected scale. It gave me, you know, my, my weight and I would take of that, you know, okay, I clearly need to lose a lot of weight. Now I can track that over time and, and I don't, ha- you know, and I don't have to do a whole lot of work to do that. It's all being done for me. And so I can be guilted every week to say that I have not made the progress I need to make. Um, and, and you see that across the range. Like it, with connected cars in particular, you have all this new data and you can make that accessible to the driver to sort of understand their fuel economy. Um, location data can be used for all sorts of really interesting ways to make, make everything from your commute better to finding things um, to making sure you're never, never lost again. Um, and the Internet of Things 
produces this sort of stuff. I, I know people sort of question why you need an internet connected, um, you know, refrigerator, but at, you know, at the same time, um, if your refrigerator knows that you, you know, it can send you alerts when you're at the grocery store that you know you need to get milk or your milk's expiring or it looks like you probably are going to need more milk just because you're running out. Um, right. The the convenience, uh, you know, some of the stuff seems sort of pie in the sky or hypothetical, but it's all stuff that's totally feasible and totally doable and makes life much more convenient and, you know, easier. All right. So we have this great party of success called the Internet of Things. And then the, the FCC um, convenes a, uh, their own forum to say, well, maybe the party isn't so great. Um, so what, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure that's exactly what they did. Uh, they, they simply are raising some red flags, which no doubt exist. Um, I'm sorry, you had a specific question. <laughs> no, I, I, it was kind of more of a glib one. But um, in terms, but they came out with a report, and they yeah. they said obviously there are a lot of benefits to this, um, but there are some concerns. And um, could you walk us through what, what the main concerns they raised sure. in the report? So they divide them up into they have a, a couple of privacy concerns, and then but I, and I also think this is the number one concern in general, and which gets the most attention in this report is security. I think everyone from privacy advocates to the companies uh, to security experts to consumers probably are aware and understand that getting security right here is just a really big challenge. Um, the FTC in particular noted that secure that the Internet of Things. Their, their concerns about whether these devices can enable unauthorized access, they can facilitate sort of attacks, you know, hackers. Right. Um, they just create secure, or safety risks in general. Um, and in fact, you know, the FTC has started getting active in, the, in enforcing Internet of Things and security being their top priority. Um, their first enforcement action in, involving the Internet of Things was against this company called TrendNet, which it, it was a big story a couple years ago. Basically, they were selling cameras um, that were advertised and used by average folks to, you know, monitor their babies at home, to monitor elderly parents, um, provide small businesses with basic audio and visual surveillance. And all of this stuff was easily accessible via live feeds over the internet. Um, what happened was, you know, a blogger was able to access these feeds uh, without using any sort of login or password. And they, they were able to share these live feeds of these random um, webcams online. Um, and then, you know, TrendNet only figured this out after someone had read a news story and contacted them. Um, and the FTC, you know, identified that the, a lot of the practices that TrendNet was engaged in just amounted to be a failure to provide reasonable security um, to right. prevent unauthorized access. And, and long story short, um, you know, they, they emphasized that there were unencrypted credentials, inadequate monitoring, and they hadn't implemented security by design. And, and these themes were hammered again, home again and again in the recent report. Well, you mentioned the buzzword, you know, security by design. Even a decade ago, there was privacy by design. And um, what, what the FTC appears to be trying to address is the dope factor. You know, yes. they don't you don't want to lunge forward and say, don't, I forgot about this. And, um, you know, for a while it was privacy, you know, just launching an app, not considering the privacy aspects. And now, you know, obviously the internet things, you have to take into account security. Um, and that you have to think about that at the outset, not, you know, after you get caught as, as these people did, um, quite embarrassingly with, with, with hardly any security at all. Well, and I think, again, this goes back to just people being unaware. Part of the challenge is a lot of these new products don't – A, when you're dealing with apps and online, you're constantly 
basically the security and privacy environment is fluid and changing every day. Um, that's not really the same case with a lot of consumer products. You just have life cycles that don't really sync up. Um, you know, the, the, the example, the hypothetical example I always think of is the, the smart refrigerator. Um, so people buy refrigerators and expect them to last 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. And yet when we talk about like our operating systems and security updates, most companies don't, don't plan on supporting you know, an operating system with additional security patches much more than two years. Right. And, and so until we get that right, and, and, I, and I'm not sure we, we have an answer, but the FTC is basically when they're talking about security by design, they're trying to inform companies that if you're going to offer these connected products and they're going to have a, a lifespan that's you know, significant, you, you, need to, you need to make sure you can support that from a security perspective. Or at the very least, you need to inform consumers that you know, these, this product has a security lifespan of X number of years and you, know, you might have used it for far longer than you, know, you otherwise would have anticipated. Um, and, and security really, you know, it can be, some of the stuff is really shocking. And the, the FTC, they highlighted this at their workshop and they highlighted this at their report. Um, so this is, this is something I think is interesting just because of my work in connected cars. Um, but Yoshi Kono, who's a, a researcher at the University of Washington, he did a lot of research where he was able to sort of take control of a car through the CD player. Um, and really eye-opening, shocking stuff. Now, there's, there's no evidence that you know, anyone is doing this in the field, and I think even Professor Kono would acknowledge that a lot of the exploits he was using are incredibly difficult to do and costly to do. Um, you know, but, it, it, but it's shocking, and I don't think it's something that consumers in general are aware of. You know, consumers are buying their Fitbits, they're buying their smartphones, and they're, they're really enjoying all the benefits. Um, but they, they, you know, security isn't something that you can you know, be aware of and so, from, a, from a very you know, in a tangible sense. So it's really uh, you know, the onus is on these companies to, uh, A, communicate what they're doing with security and really take security, you know, make that their top priority. And so that, that clearly is a big, big issue for them. And that's, that is the main theme. A couple other issues to raise. One was data minimization. Yes. Can you tell us what that is? So one of the long, long-standing um, privacy practices and uh, fair information pr- uh, privacy principles is that you should endeavor to minimize your data collection and your use of data um, just because more data – the more data you have, just – logically and statistically, the more likely it is to be susceptible to some sort of risk or harm. Um, and so the FTC has, for a long time, stressed the importance of data minimization. You know, if you don't need the data, don't collect it. Um, right. So, you know, and, and they go, a lot of their enforcement issues go after stuff like this. So they've gone after, say, makers of flashlight apps that were collecting location and not really being clear to con- consumers about that. And, you know, obviously consumers aren't expecting a, a flashlight app they're downloading onto their iPhone to be collecting location. It just doesn't make, what is that? Right. What, that doesn't fit. Um, the challenge here is the Internet of Things and I guess you'd say big data, um, both, both, of those, both of these concepts are sort of the antithesis of data minimization. They thrive right. on data maximization. And that's, the, um, that's almost the default is yeah, maximization. Well, yeah. Yes, for, for better or worse. Um, and, and so while, while I think, you know, certainly the Future Privacy Forum thinks that there's, a, there's still a role for data minimization, um, the FTC's, FTC's, like, constant assertion of data minimization sadly sort of misses the point. And, it, in fact, it doesn't necessarily even sync up with what the administration proposed last year in their big data report where, you know, they were going through and anal- analyzing some hypothetical futures that just basically revolve on col- ubiquitous data collection. Um, so data minimization in general presents as a principle is, is really challenging. Um, and, and I think the FTC, 
um, you know, they're certainly free to continue to call for this. And I think companies would be wise to consider where and when they can minimize data. Um, but I think one of our criticisms of the report is that they didn't really engage in the tough questions of how companies are supposed to consider when to minimize data or when it's data minimization just doesn't make sense, what do they do then? And you actually saw this and there were, um, there was a, a, a uh, a, a, one of the FTC commissioners, Commissioner Wright, dissented from the report, and then right. FTC Commissioner Olhaus, and she had some, um, you know, caveats. And they both emphasized that, uh, you know, they wanted to see more. Commissioner Wright certainly he emphasized that he wanted to see the FTC grapple more firmly with, you know, a harsh sort of cost-benefit analysis of of the harms, and you know, and he wanted to put, he he basically wanted to put numbers on this data minimization, um, and and certainly that that's challenging. I you know as a Privacy can be a very amorphous concept. Um, certainly at, at FPF, we talk about benefits and risks and sometimes do it in an abstract sense. Um, but certainly when the Internet of Things revolves around more and more devices being connected, sharing more and more data, um, I, I'm not sure it's, it's really good enough to simply say data minimization is, is, a, is a principle you should, you should just sort of stress. Um, it, data minimization is a, a good thing. It's something, certainly something that's be considered in a business practice, um, but again, it, it doesn't. We haven't really grappled with, you know, what happens when data minimization is not is off the table. You know, right? And, but but I guess for if you're a company, um, the FTC at least wants you to think about what you're collecting, why, and for how long. Yes, I think that's and, I think that's completely fair. And there was a, a report here in the press about um, the Sony event. And that said that actually a, you know, a lot of the stuff that damaging stuff that came out, um, you know, they would never have come out and wouldn't have been hacked if it wasn't there. And that had they, you know, had a stricter um, data retention policy, you know, a lot of these old emails that proved to be damaging would have been floating around because they would have been deleted. Well, sure, I, it, I completely agree with that. In fact, I, I actually think the the Sony hacking in general. A that gets back to the, the my the, the number one issue of security. I think I'm not an expert here, and I can't say exactly what was going on internally at Sony, but it's pretty obvious that there were a lot of mistakes made there. Um, that they they think <laughs> yeah, well. So you know, as, as a first line manager, you have to consider these things, and and the FTC. I, I imagine that you know Sony has had some calls with the FTC, and will have calls with other regulators uh, moving forward with what they did. Um, so sure, it makes sense to have an internal policy of you know data retention when you're when you don't need this information anymore. You can probably get rid of it. The, the challenge is with big data, you're going to be seeing benefits that you know a lot of these potential hypothetical benefits um, rely on keeping this data for a long time. Uh, we just you know the Internet of Things is in early days yet. Um, we don't know exactly how some of this information can be used. If, if you read any book about big data, um, and Victor Meyer Schoenberger and Ken Kukie put out this really uh, great, easy, easy reading book about big data last year, um, basically their, their main point is that all this information can be used to draw really interesting inferences, and you just don't know until you have the information. Um, so, you know, one interesting example they have is that, uh, the, the city of New York was collecting all sorts of information and they were using all, using this information able to predict when manhole covers were going to be um, exploding, um, and you know they couldn't explain why or how or where those where that where those correlations came from, but they worked. Um, and I think we're going to be seeing a lot of that with the Internet of Things, um, particularly since a lot of this stuff with with quantified health and 
um, and wearables is going to be you know used by individuals to improve you know healthcare outcomes or just their fitness. Um, I, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure you know minimizing that data or you know throwing it out of X amount of time. There's there's just untold amounts of you know research or knowledge benefits that could come from this information. Well, we're going to take a short break so we don't get fined by the NFL, um, but we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Sir Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. When you started your business, you first listened to your professors. Now that your business is growing and gaining ground, you only seek out professionals. PPC Professionals, an industry leader for highly optimized search marketing campaigns with over 30 years of combined management experience. Our professional approach to every campaign helps you find every avenue of revenue so that you can not only stay ahead of your competitors, but get a return on your investment and increase your bottom line. PPC Professionals, personal, professional, PPC services. PPCProfessionals.com. InternetMarketingINC.com is one of the fastest-growing full-service digital marketing agencies in the country, specializing in providing results-driven online marketing solutions. Internet Marketing Inc.'s passionate team prides themselves on staying ahead of marketing trends to create and implement campaigns that get more traffic to your website, gain positive brand awareness, and drive conversions. If you are looking for a data-driven approach to online marketing and advertising, call Internet Marketing Inc. today at 866-563-0620 or visit internetmarketinginc.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. This is Bennett Kelly, and we're talking about the Internet of Things with Joseph Jerome and um, getting over, going over the FCC report on the privacy implications of the Internet of Things. Now, Joseph... Um, one of the things the FTC stressed was notice and choice. And obviously notice is a big issue for the FTC. But this, this seems to be um, a somewhat contradictory aspect. They keep saying notice, notice, notice. But then they can see that consumers don't pay attention to notices. Uh, th- that's completely true. Um, I, it, it, this, it's, a, it's a tough issue in general just because for the longest time, most of our privacy practices have relied on the concept of notice and choice or at least providing some sort of long legalese document for people to click through that evidently lets people informs you about what's going on. And, and that's just sort of how um, a lot of their enforcement and regulatory like, thinking has, do- has gone. Um, at the same time, I think, I think the FTC, and, and you see this in the report, like there's a constant like, wiggle room here. Um, there's a recognition that, A, notice and choice, and I, I know former FTC um, commissioners have admitted that the notice and choice regime has challenges. Um, and that it's only getting more and more complicated. You know, you can't you can't inundate consumers with 
we we already inundate consumers with notices, and the Internet of Things is threatening to just inundate them with even more that they're going to ignore. Um, so notice and choice is is a real, real big challenge, um, and, it, and it's also a challenge just because these devices are going to be everywhere. Um, you know, I always think it's really interesting, like Amazon Echo, which you will have in the middle of your room and will listen and try and understand your every need and desire. Um, but what happens when I invite friends over? Um, is it trying to understand their needs and desires too? How do you notify them? Um, these are these are really tough questions, and something that I, I think, you know, what FPF has proposed is we we'd like this to sort of see we'd like to offer we'd like companies a we'd like to see regulators move away from notice and choice um, or at least be more flexible in how notice and choice is applied simply because um, I guess we're, we're, we'd like to we'd like people to sort of move away from a rigid notion of you have to be informed of something, you get this 10-page legal document and you click yes, to a, a more, I guess I would say, holistic and simple explanation of what is going on, like a better dialogue with consumers. Um, and, and you see this with some of the, I think, the best um, you know, companies online. And back to Amazon, I think Amazon does a really great job of communicating with consumers. Obviously, they have a long privacy policy. Um, they provide notice, and, and that's important from a regulatory perspective. But in terms of how consumers interact with Amazon um, and interact with, with these products, it, the more it can be intuitive, intuited um, just through use, uh, I think, is something that, that companies need to sort of move towards. Um, no, go ahead. No, no. I, so one one thing that we've pushed for, and this, this is the concept we we call this uh, featureization. Um, we really think that uh, giving giving consumers more access to the information that you hold on them, and giving them the ability to sort of exercise choices about that um, in in a way that lets them see what they're getting for it, it can be a lot more a lot more helpful and beneficial to individuals than sort of a rigid notice and choice that doesn't actually give them any sort of information or legitimate choice about stuff. Do you think there's a concern that if they do provide that information to consumers, consumers will go, oh my God, they have all this information? Well, I, think, I think that's a fair point. Um, but I also think, I also think in general, it, so I don't know if we'll have time to talk about this, but one of the big things in privacy right now is context. Um, this shows up over and over again. Like, if a company is respecting the context in which it's collecting information, and under and individuals can understand how that information will be used, there, I think a lot of these concerns go away. So, obviously, if you have a Fitbit, it's collecting a lot of information about you. But if you know it's collecting information about your location, um, you know, and your steps to sort of let you understand your physical activity, um, I, I think most consumers are willing to sort of make that trade off. Um, I think so, it goes to what your boss would say is the creepiness factor. Yeah, well, so I, I, creepiness in general is a, is a strange concept, and there are a lot of, um, a lot of folks that don't like it because it's, it's hard to quantify. Really, I guess what companies, what we are constantly trying to tell companies not to do is don't try and surprise consumers. Um, if you do, it, it, you know, if you do something that's going to surprise them, I mean, a make sure it's a really good surprise. But even then, um, if you if you surprise consumers, it's upsetting them. I, I think about like Apple. You know, Apple tried to give away a YouTube a YouTube album, and you had people upset that uh, what you, they they added this to my iTunes. They added music without my permission. That and <laughs> imagine Apple, that Apple was just trying to be nice and hey, have a surprise. But you know, people like to. People want to be in control of this stuff, and so I think there's a there's a lot to be said, and there's a competitive advantage to companies that can give consumers meaningful control, meaningful options, 
questions. Um, and then, you know, if you do that, I, I think I think it's highly likely that consumers will be willing to give a lot of their information away in exchange. Now, um, yeah, and also just on, on that point, I think once you're in the creepiness debate, you've lost. You know, even, <laughs> are you t- as a company, <laughs> as a company, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you're having a debate about what you're doing is creepy, then forget it. Um, you know, just move on and 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 try it again. But um, you guys had some. You might say you guys, the future of privacy forum. Um, my, my East Coast is coming out. Um, the Future Privacy Forum had some criticism of the report that didn't believe it went far enough. Um, could you elaborate on that? Well, so, so I think this goes back to what I was trying to say about data minimization. Um, you know, the, their guidance recognizes that there are a lot of beneficial uses. And, and this is something um, that I see a lot where you see a lot of these papers will detail, uh, they'll talk about privacy, uh, they'll talk about the benefits and the privacy risks. And benefits will get a paragraph and risks will be 10 pages. And I think you see a lot of this in the report where um, it doesn't necessarily grapple with the benefits. So there will be cases um, where there are just things that are that good or there are positive surprises. Um, and then you know, what are companies supposed to do next? Um, you know, presumably the FTC says, um, you know, we just you don't you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Um, mm-hmm. When I think companies or we and consumers can make an argument that doing some of these hypothetical things is is worth the privacy risk. Um, and you know, assuming that the companies aren't you know deceiving customers and there's they're not being blatantly unfair and and that's how the FTC looks at most. Uh, most consumer privacy issues, um, they get companies based on whether they're deceiving customers or being unfair to them. If a company isn't doing that, if they're not being unfair to consumers and they're not deceiving them, well, we're sort of left in an amorphous area where the FTC is suggesting you shouldn't do anything and companies are saying, well, the benefits might just outweigh everything here. Um, so I, I think the, the FTC report is, is very conservative in the sense that it's, it's repeating a lot of the things the FTC has been saying for a very long time. Um, but not necessarily engaging with what comes next. You know, what should companies be doing that want to innovate, to want to push, um, push the boundaries of how to use data? Um, because really, that's where I think the bigger benefits and the, the, the really interesting things with the Internet of Things are, um, the stuff that we're not expecting. Um, now, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, I was going to say, you know, one of the things specifically you guys objected to was that the report you know, didn't address, um, well, you didn't believe it, it fairly addressed you know, fair privacy principles, and uh, and you well, felt that the, you, or maybe you know that that should have been addressed, or somehow you know the possibility of legislation in that area should have been addressed. Well, again, we've always been called we've been calling for a sort of a flexible approach to the fair information privacy practices, and you know the FTC, uh, for better or worse, generally takes a, a rigid. Application of those things, and that's what we were discussing with notice and choice. Like the FTC is very firm that you know companies need to provide notice and choice. They need to provide more notice and more choice. Um, and you know our approach is okay, but at some point that just becomes a, a giant, overwhelming paper trail. Um, there, there are different. So the privacy, there's different privacy principles, and the FTC emphasizes notice and choice. But you also have other ones like. Uh, you know, principles based on security, um, mm-hmm. giving consumers control, um, data minimization, of course, but then also, you know, use specification. There are different principles, and you can balance them differently. I mean, you can calibrate them differently based to the based on what you want to use data for and what the potential risks are. Um, and 
you know, we sort of get locked into this notice and choice thing that, uh, you know, whether, whether, and I, and I completely understand why a lot of privacy advocates in the FTC like notice and choice because it, it provides a, you know, a firm, uh, provides a bright line rule. Um, but at the same time, it, you know, it, it, we, we, we do have to ask ourselves whether we're really helping consumers and whether we're, you know, we're providing a bright line rule that's not necessarily helping anyone. Um, and, and so, um, what would you like to see going forward from the FTC in this area? Well, um, it, it, it's tough. So I, I think there's clearly a big there's, – there's, there's a giant room for the FTC to continue to do more public education. Um, so they've, they continue to do workshops, and I think their workshops are helpful. Um, but they can do more workshops to get – I think there's a lot of benefit just getting companies in the room to think about these issues. Right. Um, I, 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 I can't actually stress enough how important that is. You know, just getting someone to think about these things can be huge. Um, and the FTC can do that um, through carrots and, and sticks. Um, it can also do more to, I think, reach the public in general and sort of give them the tools necessary to understand that they're living in this world where all sorts of data is being collected about them. Um, but, but really, you know, I, I'm not sure – you know, I, I love the FTC and uh, I, I love, I, I admire their work. I, I actually, I'm not sure that the FTC really. I think I'll, what I want to say is, I, I think a lot of the ball is really in companies' court. Um, the, the companies need to be doing much more here to, you know, establish trust with consumers, um, to be proactive, um, and to ensure that you know they're handling data in a way that you know respects what consumers want and doesn't surprise them. Um, so. You know, one of the things that we've called for and a number of privacy advocates have called for over the past few years is, is something like a uh, – um, uh, uh, well, so in, in, in human research, you have institutional review boards that make sure that whenever you're testing humans, um, you're doing things in an ethical fashion. Right. Um, we've been calling for companies to do that um, in, a, in a similar sense. When you want to use data in a way that's super innovative, super out of context, could be surprising – um, we've been we've been proposing that companies should sort of develop, you know, whether this is an internal process, an external process, who knows? Um, but they should use these sort of review boards to weigh the ethical, you know, which includes the benefits to society, the privacy mm-hmm. impacts individuals, to weigh these things before they make a decision. But that sort of just gets back to this notion of making sure it's a consideration. Uh, you know, a lot can be had by just getting people to consider these things. And you know, we've seen, you know, I've seen this in person. Just again, I said at the start of the show, um, getting car companies in the room to, you know, talk to people about what privacy issues they can consider was eye-opening for them. Um, but you also see this in, you know, edu- in the world of education technology um, and, you know, just consumer applications generally. Um, getting people to consider what they want to do as opposed to just sort of plunging ahead um, can make a world of difference and can, I, I think, can actually alleviate most of the biggest concerns that, you know, privacy advocates and, um, and regulators have. So to to use a Blues Brothers reference, the FTC is kind of playing the role of Aretha Franklin saying "think, think." Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's accurate. And and they 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 play a role of think, think through the reports, and then uh, you know a lot. There's a lot of value to their enforcement actions, which have have I think in many respects set a baseline for what companies are expected to do. Um, the FTC has been very active on you know in enforcing companies to ensure that they have reasonable security practices. Um, uh, maybe this is getting too, going too far down the the legal rabbit hole, but um, obviously there's the Wyndham case where they were yes. challenging, yeah, they were challenging the security practices of a hotel, um, and Wyndham has been saying, 
they've been constantly fighting the FTC saying, you don't have the authority to do this. You need to set us clear standards. And so far, the FTC continues to win in court. And there's, you know, there's a good argument to be made that the FTC is in a good position to sort of, uh, um, I think as, uh, as Dan Solov, who's a great privacy scholar has put it, sort of create a, a common law of privacy through their regulatory actions. And that's what they have done. Yeah. The, uh, the Wyndham case has been certified for appeal. And I think the case has been stayed pending the uh, the interlocutory appeal, so um, we'll see, we'll see what happens there. But yeah, I, I think um, I, absent the FTC, um, there really is no force in you know to create incentives for security in in the market. Well, except, the, except for consumers who right. But I mean, up until recently, there really wasn't much of a a, a market penalty for a data breach. That's true. That's true, um, but I, I actually think I think that's more likely to increase with the Internet of Things and with big data. I, I, I understand that consumers are still sort of at an inf- there's there's an information asymmetry and consumers are at a disadvantage in some respects, um, but you know I think everybody recognizes that security has become just a concern for consumers. They want you know some sort of some sort of way to feel comfortable that you know their data isn't going to be misused or isn't going to be stolen. Um, and it's been in the headlines long enough that you know the companies companies very much live in fear of these things now. Um, and it's it behooves them to you know do all that they can to ensure that they are you know meeting reasonable security expectations based on the type of data they're holding. Jump forward a couple of years. What do you think we'll be saying about the Internet of Things? Well, um, you know, I imagine I I, I imagine it just become uh, part of our daily existence. It's like it's like trying to forecast forward if mid nineties what you thought the internet would be. I think right. we'll just be living and breathing the internet of things. We'll all be having our our smart clothing, um, and that everybody that sort of thought things like smart toasters and uh, and uh, you know smart toasters and smart TVs were stupid are will embrace them and not remember what life was like before that. Um, at the same time, I, I think that will call that will require you know a little bit firmer in terms of what the rules are for all of these things. Um, now we only, we only oh. have a few minutes left, so um, why don't you anything um, you have coming up that you want to announce or any, any are you speaking anywhere that you'd like to let the listeners know about or? <laughs> well, um, I. I I guess I'd say FPF is active in all sorts of things. We're um, doing a whole so- a whole bunch of privacy stuff. Um, Jules Polnetsky, who's my boss, who was mentioned at the top of the show, is um, we're working right now to sort of create a, a, a giant presentation on, on the right to be forgotten. Um, but we're, we're also working more in terms of Internet of Things. We're trying to provide companies and advocates with, with guidance as to, you know, A, um, what these mentioned, like internal view or institutional review boards, what those might look like, so what, what sort of review process you could do. Um, we're also trying to sort of provide a little bit more clarification as to sensitivity of data um, and, uh, and, and de-identification procedures. The FTC report also highlights that, you know, companies should consider trying to de-identify data and should consider, um, you know, trying to gauge how sensitive the information they hold is. And, and so we're trying to do a little bit more to flesh that out. And, and I think, I think that basically a lot of what the FTC called for, there's room for people to get engaged and try and uh, um, create a, a baselines around a lot of these things. So that's basically what we're busy working on right now. And if people want to find more information about um, you in the forum, where should they go? Um, well, like everybody else, we have a website, futureofprivacy.org. Um, all of us, basically everybody at FPF is on Twitter in some capacity. Um, so we're at Twitter at, at Future of Privacy. Um, you can follow me at, at Joe Jerome. Um, we are 
eager to be engaged with as many uh, privacy advocates and you know um, innovators and entrepreneurs as possible. And, and if you're looking for you know practical guidance on privacy or looking for a, a forum <laughs> to meet with uh, to meet and talk with other people about how to you know advance your your business practices in a responsible way, um, please reach out. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always. You guys have been a great friends of the show, and um, so definitely check them out. Um, Future of Privacy Forum, um, and we appreciate you joining us today, Joe. Um, Joe Jerome, thanks again. Um, we're going to take a short break. Thanks. When we come back, we'll have news updates after these messages. Stay tuned for more of Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investments. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. InternetMarketingINC.com is one of the fastest-growing full-service digital marketing agencies in the country, specializing in providing results-driven online marketing solutions. Internet Marketing Inc.'s passionate team prides themselves on staying ahead of marketing trends to create and implement campaigns that get more traffic to your website, gain positive brand awareness, and drive conversions. If you are looking for a data-driven approach to online marketing and advertising, call Internet Marketing Inc. today at 866-563-0620 or visit internetmarketinginc.com. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Ben Kelly. Um, you're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report. And we have, um, and first of all, I want to thank um, Joe Jerome again. It was a great discussion with him. Some news updates I want to walk you through. Um, one was there were the two landmark victories for um, opponents of revenge porn in the last week. Um, the first was um, this week there was a, a, a verdict in uh, San Diego County. Uh, a jury convicted Kevin Bullard of 27 felony counts of identity theft and extortion, and he now will be sentenced in June and could face up to 20 years in prison. A major victory. 
And then the FTC um, got a hold of Craig Britton and um, entered into a consent decree with him where he agreed to destroy all the data. Um, and will no longer be engaging in revenge porn. And it's um, Daniel Citron, one of the leader thought thinkers in this area, said that um, the the FTC complaint um, recognizes that information shared in confidential relationships deserves protection. And then you add in California's Attorney General Harris is prosecuting revenge porn businesses exploiting confidential communications to financial ends. Um, Businesses are now on notice that it is illegal to exploit information shared in confidence and with an expectation of privacy. Stalking app providers and revenge porn site operators should heed the warning. Repurposing confidential relationships with the information shared in them for commercial gain could prompt action by consumer protection agencies. And that's what she writes in um, The Atlantic this week. So um, a major victory there. And for information about this and actually the background on the, um, the Internet of Things issue is um, available on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Um, now, um, two other quick updates. We, we had um, Ben Smith, the Sac County, Iowa prosecutor, who's been going after the Buff Report and um, has indicted one member of their team and could be indicting another one soon, I'm, I'm surmising. But um, the reason why I'm guessing that is because Ripoff Report has filed a number of motions um, trying to get Smith off the trail, one of which was a motion to disqualify. And then this week, um, it has, last week, it filed a civil rights action claiming that Smith's prosecution of Ripoff Report somehow violates their First Amendment rights. So... Um, that seems to be a sign of desperation, but we'll have more on that later. Um, and then on uh, Raif Badawi, um, the blogger who was flogged in Saudi Arabia, his blogging, his flogging has been suspended um, temporarily, um, although his health is said to be deteriorating. But in good news, his, the co-founder of his blog, um, Saud al-Shaman, um, she was released after three months in prison, so hopefully that's a good sign. A couple of other shout-outs. Um, today is the birthday of Rosa Parks um, and Charles Lindbergh, who, by the way, was the first man of the year for time. And interestingly, it is um, Facebook turns 11 today. Um, today's also World Cancer Day, and I invite you to check out the website uh, for information on that and learn about what you can do to help um, fight cancer and, and also prevent and become aware of what are the symptoms. So, um Finally, uh, in the blog, we also mentioned the uh, obviously there is a little bit of gloating about the Patriots, but you know, everyone is dumping on Pete Carroll. And the call actually um, from 538 did an analysis, and the call wasn't that unreasonable. It was designed to, um, passing was designed to um, make sure he, the Patriots were on their toes, weren't, kept, you know, weren't expecting run run, and without um, burning too much time. And in fact, of all the passing plays from the one-yard line during the whole season last year, that was the only one that resulted in an interception. Um, so statistically, it wasn't that bad of a call. And actually, the person who may have made the blunder was Bill Belichick and not calling timeout. So I invite you to check that out. Um, it's on 538. But, Braska, um, what did you think? Okay, no, I, I get the, the arguments well said about, the, about 40 seconds ago. And that when they let the pass catch and they didn't call timeout after that, 
you know, yeah, somebody's got to be on top of that, even though they see that juggling catch. They're not trying to challenge. They're wait. Who knows if they were trying to wait for like a uh, official review from the booth? Whatever it could be. Right. But yeah, you got to give Brady time to gun after that. The other thing is, regardless of what happened there, the pass that goes inside is still a bad play because that last play. Why are you throwing? A, you're letting Russell Wilson, who's not necessarily like gonna like you know thread a needle when he passes the ball. That guy kind of throws lollipops, in my personal opinion. So you either roll him out. You either throw it over the top, over the defense, and find a receiver in the back of the end zone, or you run it. And I don't know why you had three times to go ahead and run it right there. You had second and goal. You had three more chances to run the ball. Your odds are better to run or go another direction. But throwing a pass that was right in front in the middle of coverage and somebody else could just take it away, that's not a play I'd go for. It's not the, well, the, not well, a play a couple, I'd go for. A couple things on that. One is if they ran and they were stopped, then the pass would be looking for the – pass on the next play and so this was to keep them honest the second thing is you know Pete Carroll called the play but he didn't throw the pass you know Russell Wilson could have thrown it elsewhere yeah and um and I don't know why he seems to be getting a free pass no pun intended but um and everyone's trying to run Carroll out of town it's the wrong it was the wrong call to me I mean you you're look he Put the ball where you had to go, where you could put it, and you thought, yeah, you know, the that receiver could have fought more for the ball, but no, it didn't. And now you got this rookie that just looked great because he pushed off and made sure he got the ball, and he was aggressive, and the guy was just ready for the ball. It wasn't the receiver so much, and well, you know, you you call a different play to work on the strengths of of your of your quarterback. That's just me. And the the um, of course it does have a perfect Hollywood ending because. <laughs> Um, drum roll. The butler did it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know, it was the, apparently the, the, the set a record for ratings, the most viewed Super Bowl of all time. And it was definitely one of the most exciting ones, I think. You know, um, give and take um, all the way. And then, you know, that ridiculous catch. I mean, come on. I mean, everyone in Boston um, had to be going, no, not again, not exactly. another, you know, extremely lucky catch um, to, you know, to lead to their demise. Um, so there was just a, a huge swing in, um, from despair to elation after the, the pass was intercepted. Hey, take your, take your cliches, game of inches. The first time the Patriots went there, you could talk about the tuck roll and, you know, and then you look at how Seattle made it into the into the into the Super Bowl as well. Like everything is just sometimes it's luck, sometimes it's just where how things kind of play out. I actually heard that an ESPN announcer saying that you know basketball and um, baseball usually the um, the best team wins or hockey, um, but football is unique because it's you know a lot of it involves on you know, just getting the right bounce and so many other factors, penalties um, that you know luck is always an element. And, and for you know, people, the, uh, the Seahawks, of all people, say the Patriots were lucky when uh, I kind of think that's how they got into the Super Bowl. You know, they were down by, what, 16 points? And the you know, Green Bay has a player that you know, has the ball hit him in the face and doesn't catch it uh, on the onside kick, and then they can quickly score another touchdown. I mean, it was, how improbable was that? And, you know, champions make things happen. And I'm not taking anything away from Seattle and making the Super Bowl. You know, they did it. They persevered and, you know, they got a few breaks and, um, and that's how they got there. And that's, that's to their credit. But, you know, at the same time, when the Patriots get that, don't take it away from them that no. they got luck too. I mean, they had a come, it was the biggest comeback ever. 
mm-hmm. in uh, Super Bowl history, and no one's ever come back that far in the second half or even the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. So, any event, um, here's to the Pats, um, Tom Brady. Congratulations! And um, so, next week, Brasco, do we? Ha- what do we have next week? We still have to work on it. All right, we're still working on that. But the week after, we have a very um, we have a couple of interesting. Um, things coming up, um, including now that you've heard the FCC commissioner has announced um, his net neutrality plan, and the vote will be at the end of February. We will actually have um, someone from the um, free press to talk about um, that policy the day before the vote. So um, we're going to be talking about that and some other things coming up. But in any event, I hope you enjoyed us and hope you had a super weekend. Um, we'll be back next week with more on the latest developments in Cyberlaw Business. This is Bennett Kelly. You're listening. You've been listening to Cyberlaw Business Pulse Report. Um, follow us on blog, our, our podcast channels such as Stitcher, TuneIn, and iTunes. And um, court is adjourned. Be safe. We'll talk to you next week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.